Okay. So Larry Wingett, you know, I follow him and it, he is a, a kind of a, you know, a role model to me in some extent, to some extent. So his post this morning was just very simple. The ability to make good decisions is typically the result of making many bad decisions. And that's very true. And, and, and relevant, I think, to today's podcast. It, it's easy when you're, you know, less experienced to make the mistakes of your predecessors unless you use them as a resource, engage them, and, and have uh, experienced people. And uh, not to really talk about age segregation so much or age disparity, but those years of experience are worth a lot. And whether you use consultants or whether you use you know, staff, those years of experience are, are uh, hard to replace. And actually, Clayton and I just got invited to the retirement party of a airport operations manager. And we had the discussion yesterday, what will they do with that enormous brain trust that is exiting the airport? Because I mean, this guy knew everything about everything in terms of how legacy networks were patched to how you know, specific security systems were put together because they went by and large, not very well documented, but he knew how to troubleshoot, diagnose, fix all those things. And when he leaves, uh, I don't know what the, the plan will be. It's a very good question. But anyway, Larry Wingett, the ability to make good decisions is typically the result of making many bad decisions. And you know, I get those questions a lot. How do you know that? Well, because I did it the wrong way at least once, and I know it won't work. Well, it's one of my favorite Thomas Edison quotes. He said something like, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that haven't worked. Right. So sometimes you need to remind yourself of that. That's right. Ah, the wisdom of the ages. Well, with that being said, gentlemen, I guess we can dive into it, huh? Yes. Uh, Perfect. We were. <laughs> we, we were. Yes, we were. <laughs> Alrighty. Hey, guys. Welcome to VS Energy's Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. In today's podcast, we will be discussing project design decisions in an energy project. and. To kind of outline this, this, this discussion, in a way, this, this process, if you want to call it that, runs parallel with the prior episodes we have as in identifying energy, uh, ECMs, energy conservation measures, and also doing a financial analysis. So I don't know if, Mark, you want to kind of outline the process and iterations a little bit before we dive more into the details? Uh, sure. So usually, whether we go through a design, bid, build, design, build, contract, performance contract, there are iterations that occur at differing at, at levels as we progress through the uh, budget development or the audit to weigh out and wrap together the competing objectives of cost of installation versus cost of operation while integrating the requirements for constructability, operability, and that might include things like redundancy of equipment, redundancy of critical processes, and maintainability. So 
what's the guideline for all of that? Well, certainly in a performance contract, you have the necessary financial objectives, but at the same time, in a prudent project development process, you have an owner's project requirement document, which guides and gives uh, sensibility to the need for things like specific redundancies or operating cost objectives, uh, as well as maintainability, whether main maintenance is done in-house or outsourced. So whether it's a design bid build project, design build contract with a CM at risk or however you do it, or performance contract, all of those competing objectives, basically those five, cost of install, cost of operation, constructability, operability, and maintainability, all need to be melded together during those processes. So it's as you're going through, you're identifying ECMs, you're doing the financial analysis. All of this is kind of, I don't know if you want to call it in the back of your mind, but as you're, you're building the, the project per se, like you said, this is all getting aggregated, brought together to once you decide what you're doing, you kind of already have a, a good idea of, you know, there's going to be this many pumps, whatever chillers for redundancy, how, how they're going to be laid out in a general sense for operability and maintainability and so on and so forth. So as you're walking through the facility, you're already kind of thinking about this stuff as you're building the project. Yeah, it's absolutely imperative. Um, nobody designs a school building or retrofits a school building with typically one boiler. Usually there's mo a at least in the Northeast, there's modular right. boilers or some redundancies because the risk of a freeze up is so enormous and uh, you run the risk of an outage that if it's prolonged may result in a building freeze up and consequential subsequent damage to the building as that happens. So, you know, the, the project lead, whether they be the project manager or the project engineer needs to guide that process. And in the, in the performance contracting arena as different options are evaluated. Then we go back to what we talked about in the previous podcast, which was the financial metrics. You have to start to plug those things into a rough financial model or a, a you know, very high level financial model to say, is it possible to do that? And if so, what changes need to be made perhaps in other areas that one of the other competing objectives will take the hit. So is that sort of part of like the, if you would call it the iterative process? It is. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So design starts right at the start and continues all the way through the process. So when you think of design, I think there is a, a discrete notion to it that it begins at some certain phase, but in reality, it's, it's from, right from the start and ultimately up to the uh, completion because sometimes you are making design changes as you're installing as well. So are we having this conversation, like assuming that the the designer is also the energy engineer who is also the auditor, or does this also happen, you know, in a, in a larger firm, if you want to call it that, where, where that line of responsibility is kind of more clear? I think it happens both ways. Um, not often do you find uh, everything happening either at a you know one or two people take care of everything, right. but typically it's compartmentalized where you have individuals with well outlined functions that 
do a, a, a handoff and then it circles back for a review so that that iterative process happens, you know, multi-department uh, pass-throughs. But either way, and Clayton, you've been involved in design bid build projects where we, we bid projects at a very, uh, I would say, 75 or 80% design. And then as the project was being built, we watched design being finalized with you know, subsequent change orders and definition, which right. was necessary because of schedule requirements, but right. generally not the best way to do it from an economic perspective because um, as we've talked about before, you never get a better price than you do on bid day. And once the optics of competition go away, then obviously, unless you have unit pricing in the specification or some other cost control mechanism, your cost control goes away. But sometimes because of schedule requirements, that's necessary to, to uh, you know, bid at a less than 100% complete uh, design. Yeah, that makes sense. And like, I guess it kind of leads me to my next question then is at what part or what point in the process do you know that it's going to be a design bid build or, you know, if it's a design build contractor, like when is that decision made? And maybe it's really obvious. I, I'm just asking a silly question, but is that something that's just clearly identified out front in front all, all of the time? In my experience, Clayton, it's definitely been, and I'm sure it's different and Mark probably has some uh, different experiences, but it's always set well in advance of when you engage in a project, what type of design method the owner wants to pursue. But I'm sure there's cases where it started off one way and ended up a different way. Well, it's it's interesting, Nick, because in general, VS Energy is not a performance contractor. Typically, we don't right. do guaranteed savings projects internally. So, you know, in many projects, we actually do an energy audit, which then, okay, we'd like to see some schematic design. We'll do schematic design. And then the owner will decide we would like to put this project out to bid or put us on with a design build team uh, where we get involved throughout the course of the project to manage it. But Really, once the energy audit portion is done and we have rough order magnitude costs and relatively high certainty values for the savings, we go back to the owner and let them choose. And so at that point, there's you know the decision, well, we'd like to design bid build or you know we would like to have a design build contract, maybe with BS Energy involved, maybe not. And you know that's certainly their prerogative. Or we would like to incorporate this energy study as a basis for a performance contract and put out an RFP. So the foundational element is the energy audit and the costing and the very high level reasonability of the savings. Because what you don't want is to build a project that doesn't produce the results, whether it's you know, performance contract design, bid build, or, you know, any of those things, because it'll, it will all come back to the quality and veracity of the energy study. And it's got to be pretty costly to change. Well, I know it is to change tax, you know, midstream, so to speak. Absolutely. 
So that when when you talk about making that decision, the owner is deciding which way they want to go. You're not even at a thirty percent the not, uh, design phase. I mean, you're you said no. like schematics. You maybe right. put out okay. But what you're saying is the the audit and the financial analysis obviously determines pretty much the magnitude of a potential project. And, and based on that magnitude, they may go one route or another. That's correct. We yeah. did a, a project a few years ago at a military installation where we did all of the energy study work and provided that to the, the military and they put it in evaluation for about six months and then decided they would go with a design build contract. And we were put on the design build contractors team as a subcontractor to do uh, project management and then commissioning and then ultimately measurement and verification. But they had the option to put it out to bid or use another vehicle to be able to use a design build contractor on what they termed a retro commissioning project. Now, in that case, Mark, do you have any insight as to why they chose one route over the other? They felt that the design complexity, because it, it spanned multiple buildings, it spanned a number of different technologies and building uses, and they had the thought process in mind that there are so many details involved, everything from steam traps and radiation control to chiller replacements and lighting that it would be very hard to actually construct a uh, set of bid documents for and a very large controls project it would be very hard to construct a, a comprehensive enough bid document to be able to incorporate all of those things versus writing uh, a scope of work that captured the the subtleties and nuances as opposed to drawings and specifications. And I, and I agree, it would have been a very, very costly process to capture all of that on drawings and in a specification. Yeah. So in that case, it wasn't so much an issue of the scale of the project as in a multiplicity of buildings, but also the complexity, like you said, and the diversity of different trades and different considerations that made more of a fluid approach best for getting started and getting the work done. Correct. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be maybe a devil's advocate or whatever you would like to call it, but you could almost have that conversation then in our, uh, in our commissioning podcast series. If you guys haven't tuned into that, we do have a commissioning podcast series for VS energy and um, maybe almost make the argument you, you said you were the commissioning agent for that, Mark? Yes, we were. Almost make, yep. ask the question, uh, why? Or, you know, if you had a design build contract and to cover all that. <laughs> well, at, at that point, we had, and so in commissioning, we talk about that at some length, that it is absolutely imperative to have a, a very strong foundational trust relationship with the owner if you are the commissioning agent. The owner has to have confidence in the uh, honesty and expertise of the commissioning agent. And in, you know, in the case of the project we were discussing, I, I think, I mean, I can't get into the minds of the owners, but I think we had demonstrated uh, candor, 
honesty, technical competence, and they had confidence that right or wrong, we would, we would tell them uh, the truth and give them credible, factual basis for, their, for the decisions and the outcomes. And, and I'll, I'll be very honest with you, there were some challenges during that project that arose from contractor issues and that arose from deviations from scopes of work that we had to assist with resolution. And it still was a very, very successful project that, you know, we got, we got a lot of kudos for, but I think it all comes down to that trust, trust relationship. Right. And I didn't, I just thought it'd be a good, a good spot to, to make the point. Like I said, fair listeners tune into the commissioning podcast. If, uh, if you haven't already. Um, and then I got two questions for you guys. I want to ask this the right way. From my perspective, being with a small firm, again, it all kind of can get encompassed, you know, under one blanket, but there, there are generally some lines dividing responsibilities, but like, is it often to see the auditor then do the financial analysis that, I mean, that makes sense. And then continue with the final design and then, you know, potentially stay on the project as a commissioning agent. Like how often does that happen? Or is it, is it very segmented? Like at some point an A and E needs to be brought in to do MEP design and how does that handoff work? I don't know. There's two different questions. I don't know if you can address both of them together. Well, Nick, do you want to jump in here? Or do you want me to carry on? I don't want to monopolize this. No, I, th- I think it's a good idea if you do. <laughs> well, so the the short answer is even in a design build contract, oftentimes there is a third party MEP that comes in to provide additional sensibility and expertise right. for perhaps all or only portions of the contract. And I think that is a prudent risk mitigation strategy on the part of the design build contractor. So I would say, you know, the role of the A&E is not necessarily relegated only to design, bid, build. In the case of design, bid, build, the A&E firm typically has an independent contract directly with the owner. And in the case of a retro commissioning or commissioning project should be coordinating with the commissioning agent and with the energy auditor or energy design team to be able to assure that all the facets of the owner's project requirements are incorporated into the project. And that can happen either on a continuous basis or at 30, 50, 70% reviews or, you know, whatever the schedule might, might be. That makes sense. And I'm just trying to mm, bring it, simplify it. (laughs) I don't know what a good way to simplify all that is like as a energy engineer or you know, the auditors, financial, you know, people doing all of that, you would go to the A&E and say, these chillers need to be replaced with these, you know, give them a performance specification for the chiller. You know, they're going to be mag bearing centrifugal chillers, 400 tons each, you know, you, you just give them the, the, the big mechanical kind of pieces and you say, figure out in between how they're going to be piped and plumbed and like logistically where that plumbing's going to be and all of that. 
No. no we don't give them the, here's how to route the piping. Right, right, right. You give them the, you need to put in bag bearing centrifugal chillers and parallel pump and do the rest. Correct. Yeah. And, and maybe give them more direction than that. Possibly, um, you know, some of the strategies might include, you know, demand controlled ventilation or dedicated dehumidification or any number of strategies as well as the performance requirements for all of them. Right, right, right. There needs to be, and actually in the case of the project we were talking about just a few minutes ago, the energy study document that was the outfall from the first part part of the project was a standalone document. It was pretty comprehensive in terms of at least a couple of paragraphs for each building, each facility improvement measure. And that was circulated to a number of A&E firms and to a number of contractors. And they, uh, the uh, military base returned back to the the other firms just didn't seem like they could knit everything together successfully in terms of the breadth of the scope of work and the design. And that was the reason to go back and say, we'll do it as a you know, design build project. I think sometimes what makes this uh, difficult is there's not just one way, obviously, to deliver a project. Right. And there's not even 10 ways or That's 50 right. ways. And you could probably go through both of you, your whole history of projects and come up with a lot of different permutations. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, really so dependent on oh, all the factors out there from the availability of the, you know, talent and experts that you have to in, in uh, already existing and in place relationships. So and when, when we're talking about handing off to the A&E firm or MEP and in, in that context, they're, kind of interchangeable as far as the work they're doing. Right. And Mark, when you were referring to that. Yes. Okay. It, yeah. Cause it, I don't see a lot of A and E firms per se. I remember seeing them a lot in the state and local government where they had the relationship with the owner and they were the ones not driving the design process, but taking that input from the energy audit team, if you will, or the energy service company, and then preparing documents for, you know, submittal to state education department or whatever. Right. And it's a little bit of a tangent. We did a project many years ago at a large glass plant that made light bulbs. And the problem for the plant manager, who was very experienced, very skilled, very savvy guy, had to cool this area to reduce the drop in productivity during the summer, which was huge. It was like a 30, 40% drop in productivity because the environment got up to you know 90 to hundred degrees in the space that the workers occupied and they couldn't occupy the space for more than a, a finite period of time without breaks. And there were, you know, EHS issues and all that. So me being a, a diligent guy was really trying to fi- finalize the direction that he wanted to take. And, and uh, you know, I asked him, Hey, would we, should we, do you think we should put in a central plant and um, chilled water with the intent to expand? Or would you like to use DX or some other technology? And he said, listen, I don't really care if you use flying monkeys with ice on their backs to cool a place. I need the damn room cool. 
and that was it. So his objective was, I, I need the room cool. I don't care how you do it. And that's good enough, right? So that gives you a lot more latitude. But if you say, well, I'm worried about carbon dioxide, he didn't care. One mission, cool the room. And so that's what we did. But that was his response. I want the workers to not congregate near the stairwells and keep that's right. from right. passing out. Hmm. Yep. And I suppose, you know, that's the, the, the far end of the spectrum. And on the complete opposite end, you probably get a lot of people that, are very stringent and know pretty well exactly how they want it done, right? Uh, sometimes. And then sometimes. You know, there's always the middle road guys that have read a lot, that have you know checked on a lot of blogs, and you'll get lots of input that may or may not be substantially either viable or correct. Right. And you have to you know watch out for those kind of red herrings also that you can't really be dismissive, but you have to take the time to explain the the why technology and why it may or may not be the best application. Right, right, right. In certain instances. Well, that's a very important point that, you know, as technology obviously advances, at least I found the people that are out there going through facilities, looking for opportunities and looking for new ways of saving money. Sometimes you can run into some resistance when, you do come back to your MEP firm or A&E firm if you're looking at that. And if they're entrenched in some ways that they've been very successful doing things, then just like Mark said, you might have a little bit more of a, of a challenge to explain and justify, you know, why you think this is a good thing to do. And it may not necessarily be the customer saying, yeah, we'd like to give that a shot, but oftentimes things are, can be shut down before, even get to that spot by an architectural and engineering firm that maybe doesn't have the experience in that technology or equipment. Well, do they often have a lot of experience? I mean, I guess that they have an energy department or, and I assume almost everyone does, but like from what I see, Mark, especially what we do, you know, we implement some very, I don't know what the right word is, creative measures. And maybe they're, Maybe they're not super creative, but I, I don't know. You, it seems like we're always thinking ahead and some maybe larger entities might be a little stuck in the, well, like Nick said, we've done it this way for whatever reason. And like, I don't know, like what comes to my parallel pumping? Do you ever get a lot of pushback from A&E's on that or mag bearing chillers or primary secondary pump, you know, chilled water systems? I think it could be for a variety of technologies, you know, at least from the performance contracting perspective, the ESCO may be coming in and saying, you know, hey, we want to do these things that might seem a little bit out of the box to maybe the established firm of record there. And the ESCO will say, well, we're guaranteeing the results, you know, the savings, but to the A&E firm, that may ma matter for protecting their client as well and their financial interests, but they don't want to be involved in a project that doesn't work. Right. Even if the ESCO is cutting a check at the end of the day. So I think there is a lot of the, you know, the reputation of, well, we don't want to put in a system, you know, your new advanced heat recovery run around loop that we haven't done a lot of, and we don't think it's going to work. But again, it might, it might, these might be minor points in the, in the big picture of things, but they do occur and it just kind of points out, I think you have a lot of different 
obviously moving parts in these projects right and a lot of different interests and a lot of different history and a lot of different wisdom you know that these people have you know accrued over the years so it's not right to dismiss anyone outright but just a lot of different perspectives to listen to well you're right nick and and i'll throw one more thing in there that it's it's more cost effective and expedient to design based on something they've already done and that you know whether people like the the statement or don't like it it's always easier to replicate what you've already done that you know it will work versus being an innovator and, and taking the next step to higher performance so my my request or challenge to especially younger engineers is read learn experience as much as you can so you can take the the next step and be an innovator and and at least explore the viability of new technologies and projects without you know sinking the ship so to speak excellent point and it like it just maybe it like to your point mark it just takes the time to to go through it and look at it systematically and check check and recheck and quadruple check everything you know if you do your homework you for the most part know it's going to work you know all the the math doesn't lie if you put in the time right that's right although i suppose there's a lot of a lot of nerves when you fire up a a new innovative system to make sure it does work i've heard some (laughs) stories from you about uh stuff happening you know larry winget (laughs) larry winget says (laughs) well that's why it's good to be challenged with this these things too you know and as a young energy engineer or an old energy engineer you know, you should be expected that, you know, hopefully your peers are going to challenge you and say, yeah, well, did you think about this? Did you think about that? Because something that makes sense in the building across town that you did successfully, you know, may not work exactly the same way in this place because a lot of different reasons. So, so Nick, the, the right terminology is not old energy engineer. It's highly experienced energy oh, engineer. Highly experienced. <laughs> yeah. The older I get, I keep messing that up. <laughs> The more experience you get, you keep messing that up, right? <laughs> That's it. See? <laughs> no, but it's a good point to make because all it does is, you know, it, it just adds another, if you want to call it a tool, into your tool pouch, right? You do these That's things right. that seem, that are challenging and seem a little daunting. And then you do it once and you're like, oh, well, that was easy. And then you can take that and implement it maybe in another facility or, you know, as these things progress and change, you got to grow with it. and. I don't know, stay ahead of the curve and it, it all, once you do it, you take the time to learn it and go through the math it, then you do it once and it's kind of easy from there on, at least the way I see it. You just got to get over that initial holy cow hurdle, right? Oh no, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's, and it cuts both ways too. You know, you could find something and it didn't work on one project and well, the next one might be a good candidate for it. Or conversely, you, you design a great combined heat and power plant, but you don't go putting them up in every building you see. Yeah, yeah, right. So do we want to talk a little bit about like the level of detail then and why you know ec- extreme amounts of detail, if you want to call it that, are, are valuable and important for a successful project? Yes, detail, we do. Detail 
what level, Clayton? I mean, let's kind of try and drill down a little bit and say, okay, detail, give me, give me some more information as far as what you're looking for. Well, I guess I would say, and maybe I'm looking at it as a design bid build, but you know, just level of detail in the, the means and methods, um, you know, the specific equipment, the routing, all of that for a successful project. You know, when I get a stack of, uh, when I get a spec and a set of drawings, level so of detail like that. Specific to the design process you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We want to talk about that. Nick, you want to jump in? I mean, I, I would say maybe would it be helpful to start in the different phases of design, maybe at the conceptual level, there's still detail that's needed at that level or clean. Were you talking more about the final stages of design? Well, I think we should go through it all really to kind of outline, I don't know, especially as a, a younger engineer, sometimes those requirements get blurred and you, you kind of need to know what, what you need in each phase you know, it may seem obvious to the uh, experienced engineers out there. So uh, I'll go back to the level of detail, the level of detail required at the foundation and bear in mind, anything that happens before a uh, shovel hits the dirt or uh, a stick hits the pipe to start welding, all of that is foundation work. Everything before that is foundation work. So beginning with the energy audit, and we've had the opportunity to review energy audits internally, externally, et cetera. Everything that shows up in an energy audit needs to be fact-based, no assumptions, no, uh, and you should be able to trace every number back to its origin at a measurement or a known entity, either a, a you know, actual bill or an actual field measurement or a, very, very standard, okay, the power factor for this motor, you know, built in 1990 is this and the efficiency is this. I'll accept those kinds of things. But as far as, you know, what the loads are, all 100% measured and fact-based. Without that, the foundation is unstable. And then as we, as we proceed and hand off what is basically the energy study and potentially a conceptual design, again, 100% fact-based and the numbers should be transparent. The design should be transparent. You should be able to go through a review and ask the designer basically anything. You know, why is the pipe this big, not this big? What, what effect does that have on uh, the pump curve and the consequent efficiency? You know, why if we have two pumps versus three pumps, how do we get redundancy if we require both pumps for operation in parallel pump configuration? All those things need to be transparent. So we have found, and it happens that when we do design reviews, there's a somewhat parochial attitude in terms of, well, we're the designers. We know how to design. Well, we agree, but as either the commissioning agent or the owner's rep, we have the requirement, the responsibility to check these designs, to be able to review these designs with the mind on, operability and constructability and maintainability. And those three things are all part and parcel of the outcome of the design. So when left to in a design bid build project, when it's left to the choice of the contractor, you will get the lowest cost option, which meets the letter of the spec. 
which may or may not be the option which will provide the performance required. So all of the things that are encompassed in the owner's project requirement need to be very clearly defined in the specification document. And when we talk about very clearly defined, we mean very clearly defined, no ambiguities, no substitutions, no value engineering. It, it just has to happen that way because if you don't have traceability from concept to, I shouldn't say that, if you don't have traceability from the energy study through to the installed project, very difficult to achieve the expected level of performance that was anticipated in the energy study. Well, my favorite quote there, Mark, was when we say very clearly defined, we mean very clearly defined. No ambiguities. <laughs> oh, no, You're right, though. Foundational uh, analogy is perfect. And it does. It builds upon everything from there. And that's why your steps have got to be complete. Complete. And, and we, we've heard it, I, I can't tell you how many times. Well, we thought it meant this. Well, read again. Let's read it together, you know, and see if where that misunderstanding came from. And I don't care if that translation is occurring at the 30% design review or we're already actually in construction. But in this business, in the energy business, in the construction business, in the contracting business, everything in writing. And, you know, emails, great. Telephone conversations, and, and Clayton will tell you that I have a stack of five by seven pads that, well, I have two desk drawers full of them, but every day, every conversation that I have with somebody goes on a five by seven pad with a date on it. So that at the end of the week or sometimes two weeks, that pad goes in the drawer in chronological order. So that in the event somebody calls and says, Hey, what did we do on this date? And how did that get answered? I can refer to that if it's a telephone conversation. It's really important in this business because, you know, if it's not in writing, it didn't happen or it wasn't said. Well, I think on the surface, I mean, everybody can understand that, but where it becomes challenging is when, you know, the complexity of the project and the amount of people you're interacting with, then it becomes a unnecessary skill set that I don't think is really taught that much to younger people unless they're being mentored properly, yep. which is a big part of it. I agree with that. And it, it, there's probably like we started the kind of the, the podcast with is that's a, one of the things that may come from experience. <laughs> you may not get everything in writing or fully document it and you could probably get burned pretty well with that. And obviously that may be a mistake that will never happen again at that point. Well, it's kind of a beautiful thing when you have, you know, these different companies or different even what do we say, you know, levels of experience within an organization and the younger folks, maybe the energy engineers are out there and they're a little bit more aggressive maybe and willing to bring something new and different and operate things in a different way. Like Mark says, maybe they're, they're reading these journals, they're studying up on things. And then you may have the project management team or design team that's, you know, like the commercial goes, they know a lot because they've seen a lot and they can balance that with, well, you know, here's what you might want to think about, but still it's, 
It's like the rotor and the stator. I mean, you need both of them to kind of keep the machine going. You need to be forward looking, but you also need to be grounded in, you know, what is possible. And it's never a good thing to go in and screw up a project completely to the point where you're making the newspapers and shutting down a facility. Oh, that's a hell of an analogy. Nick. Boy, yeah, that ended pretty strong. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. But it's true. It, you know, I, I will tell you, we've been legal resource uh, subject matter experts on failed performance contracts where school districts have had to raise their taxes, raise their school taxes, because the performance contract did not perform it as anticipated. And to make the bond payment, they had to increase the levy. Well, that makes the newspaper. And at that point, nobody looks good. And uh, you don't want to be you don't want to be on either side of that. You don't want to be the school board that committed to the project, and you don't want to be the performance contractor that committed to the savings because somewhere in either mediation, litigation, arbitration, whatever it is, there will be an outcome that is not is not going to go as well as either party like would, would like. Oh, sure. And the A&E firm may have their name all over the drawings and everything, and right. oftentimes the face front. Uh, the technical side. So, yeah. Do we want to just briefly kind of discuss, and I know Mark already touched on this, but some of the competing objectives and the importance of owner engagement then in the design process, that's like cost of installation, cost of operation, constructability, operability, and maintainability? I will. Perfect. Cost of install, again, whether it's through the uh, design bid build or performance contract and typically a performance contract will, will issue internal requests for proposal from either mechanicals or electricals or both or maybe they have them in-house but you never get a better price than on bid day mm-hmm. nothing breeds good pricing like competition and that doesn't necessarily sacrifice quality if the project specifications or rfp is written in a manner that fully defines with no ambiguity, the scope of work. So cost of install, yep, there's always a a great opportunity to reduce costs just by going through a competitive process of some kind. And you can usually find options that cost less to install that then have an impact on cost of operation. And there is usually an inverse relationship where I can find cheaper substitutes, but they don't perform as well. And and you need to keep in mind what the objectives are from the owner and if it's a performance contract from the ESCO. One of the things I want to talk about, though, is the value engineering process and how that may adversely impact either operability or maintainability. And as contractors go through a value engineering process, and we've seen it many times, there are reductions in specific items that may impact operability or maintainability. We did a chiller project a few years ago and the contractor said, well, you know, you have a strainer at every pump, correct? Well, we can just put a strainer on the suction to both pumps. Okay, but if you do that, how do we uh, clean the strainer without taking the the chill water system out of service? Well, you usually only change, clean a a strainer, you know, during the night or uh, during the off hours. Well, this is a process plant, so we need redundancy on the strainers. 
And those kinds of things without a mind on operability, maintainability would go away during a value engineering process because typically you don't, you don't see that or right. on every pump. Same thing with redundancy. Well, why do we have three pumps here? Well, we're parallel pumping and you know, in honesty, you can, you can parallel pump all three pumps, but it, when it, when all is said and done, you need two pumps to be able to operate the system efficiently. And it's pretty typical that especially in industrial plants, maintenance may not be able to happen within, you know, a, a four hour window. So it's, it's imperative that we have a higher level of redundancy and the same with chillers. Or if you're in a critical environment, if it's a medical facility or a manufacturing facility or a clean room facility, uh, redundancy becomes essential. And even though it's higher cost, you need to build that into the design so that uh, the first time there's an outage, uh, the, the the owner doesn't come back and say, well, why the hell is my plant down? Or why is my clean room out of spec? Or you know, why is my manufacturing process unstable because we took out redundancy. So all of those things compete, but they can all be balanced if we, if we collaborate effectively during the, especially schematic uh, and early stages of design to be able to make sure that we have all of those things incorporated and don't give them up during a value engineering process. Yeah, and th- those are great points, and it's it's really interesting to you know being able to see that process happen firsthand how it how it goes because yeah some of those things that I don't want to say I take for granted but you know come to expect I guess with parallel pumping and just redundancy kind of naturally built in when I say naturally by the designer to a system that those people can take that out or don't think about that all the time and learning with a good foundation. It's stuff that, like I said, to me seems, I don't want to call it obvious, but pretty obvious to whereas others, they might not look at it like that, like you just said, and that's where that stuff can get lost. Hey Mark, any insight into when I read and think about competing objectives you know, we necessarily think between the different discrete firms that are working on a project, but what about within the client organization itself? You have any good stories there? Um, there's always competing objectives internal to the firm. Constructability, yeah. Um, you know, we, we've been on projects where it, in, in one case, I don't know, there are 250 300 VAV boxes and about half of those had not seen the light of day in 25 years because they were under (laughs) drywall ceilings and they were, some were fan powered boxes. So there's filters on them. Yeah. And uh, literally those filters looked like they were made of drywall dust. The the whole thing, I mean, the filter, which might weigh what? 10 ounces when you put it in were probably four pounds a piece. Um, and they hadn't seen the light of day since they were, they were built. And why was it? Well, during the value engineering process, 30 years ago, somebody decided, well, access doors weren't required. And in those days, it was less common to engage the operations staff during the design process because, uh, 
when the redesign came out for the renovation, every single VAV box had an access door or where, where they were in close proximity, one access door for two VAV boxes. But you sure. know, those kinds of things that seem obvious can go away when the contractor is speaking only with the with the uh, financial manager or the project manager who may or may not have a mechanical systems background and therefore says, hey, that's a good idea. We don't need, what do you need all those access doors for? Well, there is a reason and it's important and it is normal now currently to have operations staff and or maintenance staff engaged during construction reviews in most cases. Um, I think that's just one small example, but it shows how easily even the simplest things can be overlooked and or abandoned in the interest of cost, unless there is input from those, those uh, teams. Well, that was exactly the kind of thing I was thinking about was uh, the maintainability, you know, the things Mm -hmm. after the fact, but then another question, you know, why does value engineering have such a bad rap? It seems, or do you think it does? I think it does. I think the term value engineering just makes Mark cringe. <laughs> it doesn't always make me cringe. Um, but doesn't always. It doesn't always. There are I've sat in on so many value engineering meetings um, that you know, usually my tongue bleeds a little bit by the end because I have to bite it so often, but the the you know, value engineering means different things for different contractors. And we've seen contractors bring in value engineering proposals that are very well thought through and do address the trade-offs between cost of installation, cost of operation, constructability, and, and maintainability, and let the owners choose between those. Hmm. And in other cases, we've brought in teams with value engineering proposals that have the clear perverse incentive to reduce costs, give back a small portion of the cost savings and pocket the the rest without being transparent relative to the impact on operability, maintainability, and just showing a cost reduction. And I I think, you know, that also helps you understand the, I don't know, credibility of individual contractors. You just need to be able to guide the contractors to be transparent. Okay, we can we can evaluate this, but what is the impact on operations? Are we sacrificing operational stability, operational reliability, and what happens to maintenance? Can we still perform maintenance on the on the equipment or on the building? And it, it all comes down to transparency and, and the collaboration effort. If there is a, a value engineering proposal, it needs to be collaborative and the owner, all, all members of the owner's team need to be engaged. Yeah. It's funny. Cause when you say things like access doors for a VAV uh, boxes, I'm thinking, well, that's something that a value engineering effort should add and not necessarily take away from a project, but I do. That's the, the context that I'm familiar with when people speak ill of value engineering is just what right. you said, kind of things going away and not being communicated for everybody's input so they can say, well, no, we kind of like those things. 
you know, that's a value to us to keep them in. Well, and, and, you know, we do a lot, a lot of control system design and we specifically require feedback on every actuator and things like that, that um, in the earlier days, it would take a lot of additional wiring and money. Now with smart transducer or smart actuators, you can get all that data from just the uh, device itself in a, in forms of communication and the same thing with speed drives. You know, we want every speed drive to, you know, be fully integrated, not just use a zero to 10 volt signal or, you know, uh, two to five or anything like that to give them a, a speed signal and then get a analog input back. Let's do the integration because it doesn't cost any more, assuming that the, integration contractor, the controls contractor is the skill set to bring Modbus into uh, a backnet system and, and, uh, or, you know, just a simple backnet integration. We've seen some backnet integrations that took days, which in, there's just no reason for that. Nowadays, everything is well documented. So we see contractors try and, well, we really don't need position feedback. Yes, we do that's one of the easiest ways to find out, find out what the system response is versus the control system. When I'm talking about the system response, I'm talking about the mechanical system response, mm. uh, the control system response, because you can find out, oh, the valve's fully open, but we don't see a change in discharge air temperature for X amount of time. Well, then it's a system response issue, not a control system response. I just think uh, a lot of times, you know, there needs to be uh, empathy on the part of the contractors. And when I mean empathy, I don't, I'm not talking about sympathy. Empathy is the ability to understand how other people are uh, feeling or analyzing a uh, process or project. So for contractors, they need to be able to juxtapose themselves, put themselves in the owner's position and say, well, if this was my building, what would I want versus what do they, the contractor want? Or kind of like when you, when your analogy of you just bought a brand new Lamborghini and it showed up with a scratch and the contractor was like, ah, it's fine. We, we, we cleaned it up. You know, you yeah, got to say it out. Yeah. Well, if you bought a brand new car and they said that to you, you'd be pretty pissed, wouldn't you? So exactly. You'll use your analogies to help with some of that empathy so they can understand a little bit more bring it to reality and i don't know guys i think with that we can probably wrap up this episode right i learned a lot <laughs> we covered a lot too i would say <laughs> we covered a lot yeah we covered a lot we brought a lot in for our you know one hour's worth of discussion i know we could probably keep talking for many hours on the dynamics of these projects but hopefully we're able to kind of make some sense out of this uh this process that can get pretty murky and there's a lot of things to consider all the way from the, you know, to the initial I'm stepping on the job, you know, for my first look at it as an energy audit all the way to we're printing bid documents and then building the job. So, um, right. And I think we covered a lot of the important aspects of that process. What I think is interesting too, Clayton, is that we, in every successive episode, we seem to kind of touch on something from, you know, each of the previous episodes too. And maybe that's not uncommon. I mean, we talk about the whole foundation and yeah. 
building upon it. So, but it is interesting. We keep going back and bringing the uh, the old topics into the current paradigm. Well, and it's good. And hopefully, our listeners, you know, if you're if you're picking up on this sort of in the middle, um, check out our you know previous episodes too, because we do cover a lot of stuff that is extremely valuable. And, and you'll see, we always, like you said, Nick, we always kind of go back to that stuff that we've already discussed because it's important. So listen to it all, if I if I can say. <laughs> Agreed. But with that being said, stay tuned. Our next episode, we'll actually be discussing the measurement and verification process and why this is a critical step in a project. So thanks for tuning in. Hope you guys have a great day and we'll talk to you later. And for more information on our company's VS Energy or Applied Facility Science, check out our websites, www.vsenergy.us or Applied Facility Science, www.appliedfacilityscience.com. A lot of great content on our websites. There's a contact page for each one. So if you want to reach out, have any questions, uh, inquire about anything, feel free to, to do so. So thanks a lot, guys, and have a great day.